Lord, I don't know if I'm discerning rightly, but it just sensed like a, some kind of special tenderness towards you in the room as we were praising you. And so my prayer is that you continue to give us that tenderness and that for each of your people, um, that there would be a, just a, a, a eyes on you, just ears listening to you. What do you want to say to me? Lord, some may need a word of encouragement. Would you tell them how much you love them? Some may need a word of correction. Would you gently, gently redirect them? We gather as a people who love you. That's who we want to be. Above everything else, people who love you. You've made yourself known through Jesus. You've given us your spirit. So we say yes and amen to that. In your name we pray, King Jesus, amen. Amen, well, I just, I just wanted to take a, a beat there. So it is good to see you all. Is everybody doing okay? Fantastic. So we're in week three of a three-week series. So if you're just joining us, let me point you back to the last two weeks. And really, I'd love it if you would consider the last three weeks kind of one message spread out over three weeks uh, because we've been looking at a lot of biblical texts and we've been trying to ask, what does a biblical theology of ethnicity and race look like? What does a biblical theology of justice look like? And today what we wanna do is ask, how do we apply those things? So that's really our agenda today, is to ask, how do we apply those things? Now, just as we jump into that, I do wanna share with you one bit of good news, which actually is a lot of what we talked about last week. We said that a, uh, a right theology of justice involves generosity for the poor. Do you guys remember that we talked about that last week? If you were here with us, you, just, you can't see, not see that in scripture, right? Ezekiel 15, Deuteronomy 24, it's just over and over again. This idea of generosity towards those in need. And you know that every Christmas Eve, we take up an offering during our Christmas candlelight services for ministry partners around the world, many of whom very much fit in that category of those who would be in need, those who, uh, brothers and sisters who are oppressed for their faith in particular in this case. And so we were giving towards brothers and sisters in Yemen, those in Cambodia, and in Bosnia. So I just get the joy of reporting back to you. You and your generosity gave $156,000, just north of that. So yeah, it's okay. You can applaud even though it's you. I know that. Uh, it's okay. It's always awkward. No one knows. Do we applaud? It was us. Do we? Do we? It's okay. Yeah, just to celebrate that. I think what we would say is we are applauding and giving thanks to God. So that money's already gone out. It's in the hands of those who uh, we said we were gonna give it to. They've got it. And so we just wanted to report back to you. And I'm just so encouraged because as we talk about what is justice, we said one of the realities of that is that we are generous towards those in need. And you have demonstrated that yet again. And you've demonstrated it again and again and again. In addition to your just regular giving to your church family, you give above and beyond with such generosity. So thank you. I hope that encourages you uh, to know that God is at work on the move in your hearts, in our body, and then we, get to, we just get to give that away to others. And man, the work that's gonna be done among our brothers and sisters in all these different contexts, I cannot wait to see what he will do and how he'll utilize that. So praise God for that and well done, family. So let me do something for you as we get into now, well, how do we apply these biblical theologies that we talked about? Let's do a little exercise, all right? Go with me here for a moment. Uh, close your eyes. I wanna see if you can remember something. All right, close your eyes, so no cheating. All right, I promise I'm not gonna come down and do anything weird, all right? So just take a moment, and I want to see if you can kind of go from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet and remember everything that you saw when you looked in the mirror today. So just think about that. Can you remember, you know, kind of think about your face, your hair, is it a good hair day, a bad hair day, right? They're all bad hair days on this end up here. All right, can you, can you remember that? Think about your shirt. Can you remember what shirt you're even wearing right now? You have a belt on, no belt, pants, socks, shoes. All right, open your eyes. All right, did you remember? How many of you, how, let's be honest. Did anybody go, I honestly cannot, with my eyes closed, I don't actually remember what pair of pants I'm wearing right now. Yeah. Absolutely. So if I saw a few nodding heads. Absolutely. That would probably be me. I think if you asked me to close my eyes, I would have been like, yeah, I got out the door pretty quick this morning. The look in the mirror was pretty brief. All right. Well, here's why I had you do that. All right. As we talk about theology over the last couple of weeks, the thing I want you to remember, and this is the big idea for today, is that good theology always has to be applied. Good theology 
always has to be applied. In other words, it's not just an exercise of intellect. We're not just trying to learn new facts. We are always seeking how we must apply it. And let's think about then what James 1, 22 and 20 through 25 say. And you might've known this is where I was gonna go based on what I just had you do. But listen to what it says. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So recognize what James is saying there is there's something about listening to the word of God and right theology and then doing nothing with it that makes you actually, you're deceiving yourself somehow in that way. Maybe deceiving yourself about who you are in your heart. Maybe deceiving yourself about uh, what it is that God actually wants from you. But there's a deceit at work there. So hear that. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see what Paul is doing? He's using, sorry, not Paul, James, is doing, he's using a metaphor there. And he's saying, the purpose of looking in a mirror is that you remember what you look like, right? Is that you looked into the mirror and you saw like, okay, my hair's not out of place. I look decent. I can head out. My shirt is like not half tucked and half untucked. I, I took a glance in the mirror and that was the whole point of looking in the mirror. Otherwise, why would you look? If you forget what you look like, then you, there was no point in looking in the mirror. He says the same is true as if you just collect data points about right theology and don't seek to act upon it. If you don't want to live out and do what it is that you learned, then there was no point in doing the looking and the learning in the first place. That's what James is trying to say to us. And so we spent the last two weeks thinking about, well, what does a, in, in opposition maybe sometimes to what the world thinks, what does the Bible say about ethnicity and race? Like if you just trace from Genesis to Revelation, its message on that front, what does it say? And if you do the same thing for justice, what does it say about that? Now, our agenda is not, I just wanted to take one extra week because I could have stopped there. I could have been like, there you go. There's, there's our theologies. Now, you know, go and apply them. But I wanted to spend a little time today with us thinking about how do we apply this? Because we can't just be those who collect right data points about theology. We must be those who are doers of the word and not hearers only. Can we all say amen to that? All right, that's our agenda because it pleases God for us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. So let's remember our two kind of overarching statements. When we look at a theology, a biblical theology of ethnicity and race, the overarching sentiment that I wanted you to take away was this, is that ethnicity and ethnic diversity in particular has been a tool that God has used throughout history to propel forward his redemptive purposes in the world. It's a tool in God's tool belt. It's something he delights in and uses to make the gospel go forward. And in fact, it points to and testifies to the gospel was something that we saw as we looked at Ephesians chapter two and we looked at Genesis one and three and 12 and just worked our way through the scriptures. So ethnicity is this tool that God wants to use to propel his redemptive work forward in the world. Then when we looked at justice, we saw that it's slightly different. It's not just a tool. It's not just a means, it's an end. So that God, when we talk about justice, we're talking a right theology of justice teaches us that it is one of God's chief ends that he would bring about a just kingdom into the world. That we talk about his chief end is his own glory, but what glorifies him is his establishing of a kingdom of perfect justice and that he's bringing that about. So it's what he's aiming towards and therefore we want to be a people who join him in the work of justice according to the way his word defines it. All right, so that, those are sort of our overarching understandings of a right theology of ethnicity and race and justice. Now, let's talk a bit about application. Whenever as a church we talk about applying God's word, I want you to think in three categories, all right? Your character, your beliefs, and your actions. Your character, your beliefs, and your actions. We often talk about it as being people of deep truth, deep lives, and deep love, right? Deep truth being, what, what do I believe? Deep lives being, you know, what are my actions, right? And deep love, what's my character, right? And so think character, beliefs, actions. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. I wanna give you a couple of application ones. And that we could do thousands, okay? But what I've tried to do today is go through the points of a biblical theology that we talked about over the last two weeks, 
And I'm not gonna go back over every text. That's why we kind of need to treat this as one message over three sections. I'm not gonna go back through every text that we looked at, all right? Would you say we looked at a lot over the last two weeks? Yeah, <laughs> you're like, if you were here, you know we did, all right? So we're gonna try and now take some of those points and just ask, how do we apply that in the most straightforward way? That's my goal today. So let's start with character because when we think about that, that's the place I like to start and think about who we are, right? And then we'll talk about beliefs and we'll talk about action. So application point number one, under this idea of character, what is our character like? Is that, this would be my first statement, empathy for image bearers is always valuable. When we think about applying a biblical theology of ethnicity, race, and justice, the first thing that we need to say is empathy for image bearers is always valuable. Now you remember in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we heard this idea, this truth, that all people are made in the image of God, that God has created all people, Christians, non-Christians, made in the image of God. And one of the things we learned then is the implication of that is that people have immense value and are worthy of dignity. All people, whether they agree with us or disagree with us, People, by virtue of being people, the pinnacle of God's creation, a biblical theology tells us they are worthy of great value and great dignity and should be treated as highly valuable and with great dignity. So we recognize that in both of our theologies, it was a, this sort of linchpin understanding that if you don't start with the image-bearing nature of human beings, you can't get to the right place on any of these subjects. Does that make sense? You gotta start there, right? And so here's what that means. It means we should feel empathy when image bearers of any kind are harmed. When harm comes to any person, whether it's by their own sometimes foolish choices or actions, whether it's through an activity that ultimately justice will require punishment for, which this does not undo that, it is always right to search to feel empathy for an image bearer who is harmed. Whether that be a police officer or a minority, whether it be any person in any category, if our instinct is to start from a place of harsh criticism or to say, well, they deserved that, I would suggest we have missed something about what it means to, to exercise right biblical theology towards all image bearers. Does that make sense? Image bearers calls for empathy from us. That doesn't mean affirming everything somebody does. You know, empathy doesn't mean affirming, yes? There are things that are wrong. We're gonna to get to that in a minute. But let's start in our character with being people who go, I want, I want to exercise empathy. That's what I want my instinct to be towards other people. Now, so statement number two in terms of our character is the first, empathy for image bearers is always valuable. Second, we should regularly look for injustice in us and in our groups, now that sounds like an action more than a character trait, but here's what I'm gonna say. The character trait is humility. The character trait is humility that we have to cultivate if we're gonna rightly exercise a biblical theology in these categories, and really any category, to be honest. We should regularly look for injustice in us and in our groups. Now remember that when we looked at these biblical theologies, we said Genesis 3 is this other really crucial place to understand that as sin has entered into the world, Genesis 3 talks about that moment of rebellion of humanity against God. And what happened is there's been this deep fracture, both between us and God and between people with, within one another and across people groups. And as a result then, a right theology of sin teaches us that we are going to find sin in ourselves again and again, because that's how deep the sin goes. Does that, does that make sense? So like we you know, my, I'm, I'm coaching Upwards Basketball right now, my two girls' basketball teams for Upwards Basketball, and the devotion this week was on sin. We talked about the nature of sin, and we talked about how you have to understand the bad news in order to get to the good news. The gospel of Jesus and the cross of Christ means nothing to you if you don't begin from the place of how deeply broken you are by sin, that you are hopelessly lost. You don't need a savior unless you know you're hopelessly lost, right? And so, you know, we began with the bad news. And so we, you know, we talked about sin as missing the mark. And then my team proceeded to go out and miss every shot that they shot as a demonstration <laughs> that they understood a theology of sin. We're not hitting the mark. We missed them all. <laughs> and I just thought, man, we're not good at basketball, but we are theologians on this team. That's, <laughs> that's, what's ha that's what happened. You think I'm kidding. I'm really not. 
If you're on my team and you're in here, I love you. We did not hit many shots. So listen, it means we need to cultivate the habit of humility and expect that we will have a disposition to devalue people who are not like us. We, that's one of the things we notice, right? In Genesis 3, immediately, these diverse ways that people bear the image of God, and in that case, it was male-female, they immediately become things that we divide across. They become points of division rather than being things that we celebrate. And that's still true today. Now look, if I've got a right theology of sin, that means I should expect to find that in myself. I should expect that when I say to the Lord, and like Psalm 139 says, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That when I pray that prayer, which I should regularly be praying, that I'm gonna expect that there are gonna be times where God's going to reveal things in me that do not please him. That there's animosity and devaluing of people who are not like me. I should expect to find that. Now, by the grace of God, we can grow in sanctification. We can become more like him. We become less that way and more righteous. That is certainly true. Listen, let me, use a, let me use a comparison. I don't know that I've ever met a man in all my years of pastoring and doing discipleship who didn't say, I have to be on guard against lust at all times. The most mature men I know recognize there's still a temptation. They still find something in themselves that is not pure, that is not sanctified, and they must be on their guard when they look in their hearts, they see the temptation, and when they're honest with themselves, and they go, that's still there. That flesh still has to be crucified. Why would thinking that devaluing of people of other ethnicities somehow not be just like that? If I look at myself and still see that in need of sanctification, why would I expect there's not something in the area of ethnicity and race that still needs to be sanctified? If again and again and again, across all of human history, people have divided over ways they bear the image of God and struck one another because of it, why would I expect that that wouldn't be in my heart? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand why we, and it's so fraught with tension that sometimes we want to, well, no, no, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Like, friends, you probably are. Now, look, you can grow. And I'm not saying you are what you were last week or, or six months ago. You shouldn't act as if there's no ability to grow in victory over that thing in your heart, but to act like it's no longer there or you know, doesn't make its way out sometimes just seems like bad theology, to me, it seems like a bad understanding of how pervasive and how sick sin is and how much you need Jesus to save you and sanctify you. So when we think about our character then, that's the character of humility. Now, the other thing to recognize there, that was the first part, is just recognize that, yeah, I'm gonna find that in myself because I've got a right theology of sin that informs my theology of ethnicity and race and justice. But also then to recognize that when people come together who all have that predisposition, at times it will manifest, manifest certain sins will manifest themselves more greatly because we share them. And so I should look for it not just in myself, but in groups to which I belong, right? Where I, where I belong to and I'm participating in a group, I should look and ask, is that showing itself? Is it revealing itself? Are there sins that are kind of making their way out, not just in me, but in us, so that we're not overly individualistic in our thinking? Now, we talked last week of saying just being a part of a group doesn't make you guilty of the sin of another person in that group, but it is something to look for where those things take root. Now, the third thing I wanna say, and this is the last one under the category of character, is that we should strive for meekness. We should strive for meekness. Now, this is closely related to what we just said about expecting to find these kinds of sins in ourselves and just acknowledging that and then looking to repent for them. But listen to Matthew chapter five, verse five. Remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus taught us. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, what he's saying there is that meekness, we understand, is humility inwardly and gentleness outwardly. That's what meekness is. Humility inwardly in terms of how I think about myself, how I relate to myself, and gentleness outwardly. So as I think about meekness, and he says, the meek shall inherit the earth, he's saying something to the effect of like, man, I bring an inheritance of authority and power to those who are meek, right? Ultimately, in the end, but there's a way in which I believe that manifests itself in our lives. Listen to James 1, 19 through 21. So we just read early at the beginning of the sermon, we just read, we gotta be doers of the word, not hearers only, Right? because we were thinking about you gotta put theology into action. But right before, you may not know what he says right before he says that. Let me read it to you. Listen to what James says. 
just in the verses preceding those. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, what I'm gonna tell you is he's giving us, like, that's what meekness looks like. That's what he's saying to us because he's about to come to meekness, right? So just get that in your brain, right? Be quick to listen, quick to hear. Be slow to speak and be slow to anger. Then he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now listen, let me just trace this for you because then he goes on to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So here's the flow of that. What James is saying to us is, hey, I'm gonna start with like just describing to you what meekness looks like. Listen before you talk. Be slow to speak. Really listen. Then, friend, be slow to anger. And then he, he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. In other words, like this is what walking in meekness looks like. He's linking the two up, all right? And then, right after talking about meekness, he goes into saying, and be a doer of the word, not a hearer. So if I'm following that passage, what I should immediately think to myself is, well, if I want to be a doer of the word and not a hearer, it's gonna require meekness to be implanted in me. The word of God in meekness implanted in me. So in other words, just, let's just make that really simple. What the word is telling us there is that I will not be a doer of the word in terms of a right theology of justice and a right theology of ethnicity and race. I won't live out those theologies in a way that please God unless I'm meek. I must have meekness implanted in me in order to walk forward in those things. So that's why I offer it as one of our huge application points in terms of our character. And just to be honest, quite often we just don't see this among ourselves. Too often there's not enough meekness. And we sort of, meekness doesn't preclude calling sin, sin, and it doesn't preclude speaking up for truth. It doesn't, right? But friends, you need to recognize in order to be effective and impactful, you have to embrace the character trait of meekness. And don't use standing up for the truth as an excuse to not be meek. You can do both. All right, let's go to beliefs. All right, let's go to belief. So that's character. And again, there's so many more that we could list, but as I prayerfully considered what applications to bring forward today, those are the ones that I believe that God brought to mind. So in beliefs, here's the first thing we need to believe in light of these theologies we've talked about is that truth is objective and it is valuable to learn from different people's experiences. I wanna say those two hand in hand, Okay. Truth is objective, and it is valuable to learn from other people's experiences. So remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, when we were learning about our theology of justice, we said justice is not just a set of ideas. Justice is a person. What we meant by that is that justice is rooted in the very nature of God himself. We know what justice is because God says, I am the demonstration of justice in my very nature. Therefore, I define it. I make it what it is. And you're then receiving it, not as a set of, like, I've got to align with these ideas. It is me. And if you relate rightly to me, you will become a person who is just. Does that make sense? So that's what we learned first and foremost. So what does that then tell us? If justice is first and foremost a person, what means this? Remember that one of the attributes of God is that he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God doesn't change... And justice is what he is, flows out of his nature, then it, by definition, justice cannot change. Justice is the same across all times, all cultures, and for all people. What it truly means to be just. Does that make sense? It's not as if we go, well, I want to be a just person because the Bible tells me to be just. But God was one way yesterday and then he changed and so the standard of justice changed and then I have to think differently about justice tomorrow because he may not be the same. He might change. God does not change. He defines justice. He doesn't need any help doing it and therefore justice does not change what it means to be just. Are you with me? So here's what that means. Let's, let's really draw this out then. If that's true, and I believe that it is, then it means there's an objective standard 
which is an expression of his nature that is justice. And therefore, therefore, the idea that somehow only one group of people can identify what justice looks like. So there's a, there's a prevailing notion in the culture which says that you, if you possess power, can't truly identify what justice is. And if you're an oppressed minority, then you can. And in fact, only you can, right? And that's a false idea. And here's why. Because one, God defines what justice is. And two, he delights to make himself known to people. God reveals himself to us in his word, through his son, and in his spirit. And as he does so, here's what you can trust. Regardless of what ethnicity you are, you can know what justice is. You can know it. And then you must live it but you can know what it is. And not one of us is in a more privileged position of being able to understand what justice is. And that's what I mean when I say truth is objective. Friends, if you don't start there, then you will either say, well, only this group gets to define what injustice is and what justice is, and only this or only this group will get to. And that's just a false, unbiblical idea. So the prevailing notion that you have to be from an oppressed people group in order to be able to truly say, well, this is injustice or that is, to be able to speak to it, is not, it doesn't line up. It doesn't square with scriptural ideas. Now, that said, let's say in the same breath that while truth is objective and it can be known by everyone, regardless of what ethnicity you are, it is highly, highly valuable to listen to and learn from the experiences of people who are not like you. While truth is not based upon those experiences, it is so deeply valuable in a right theology of ethnicity, in a right theology of race and justice to listen to people's lived experiences. It doesn't mean you'll always say, well, I think, I think that's accurate. But to listen, what do we just read in James? Be quick to listen, <laughs> slow to speak and slow to anger. Be discerning about what you listen to, but listen. Listen, listen, listen. That is so deeply important. And recognize that there's something you can learn. There's something you can learn from those who are not like you, all right? Now, the second belief is that injustice must be assessed and confronted, and then a key word, patiently. Justice must be assessed and confronted patiently. So this goes hand in hand with the last belief about God's nature determining what justice is. Here's what it means. It means we can't do nothing about injustice. If God defines justice, if it's part of his very nature to be just, then would we agree that where injustice exists for a Christian to turn a blind eye is wrong? Would we agree with that? Okay, if we don't agree with that, then we are saying, God, that's not an important attribute that you possess. I don't care. And if we're going to be a people of the word and a people who are about the very nature of God defining for us, if God is just, then God's people must care about injustice. We cannot turn a blind eye. That is part and parcel with good theology, okay? Now, the second thing that this idea that justice flows from the very nature of God, in, like on the other side of that coin is this, is that not everything that someone calls injustice is injustice, not everything someone calls injustice is injustice. And that's why I would suggest claims of injustice need to be confronted and they need to be assessed with patience. So there's, look, friends, social media, not our friend on this one, okay? There's this notion of silence is complicity that gets talked about all the time. Silence is complicity, silence is complicity. Now listen, if by that we mean that as a Christian, I see something that is unjust according to God's word and I turn away and do nothing where I have an opportunity to do something and I'm silent about that, then yes, I have done something wrong, okay? But often silence is complicity means if you don't comment in the first five minutes of some event happening in our cultural context about how unjust it is that this just happened before you've collected any data, any facts, any understanding about it, if you don't immediately put it up on your Facebook wall, then you are silent and complicit. And that is just not biblical wisdom. It's not biblical wisdom to fly off the handle and start making accusations and stating things. It's just not the way God tells us to be. Be patient. All right? Now, listen, do you hear me on both sides of that coin? Don't use that as an excuse to say, hey, I see injustice and I don't care. And I do nothing assess it according to God's word 
And where you have opportunity to speak to it, you need to speak. But as you assess, not everything that is called injustice is injustice. And that takes nuance and listening and conversation. It is challenging. All right, next belief. It isn't just people and groups with power who can be unjust and racist. Here's the other side of that coin. But cultural power does come with a particular temptation towards injustice. And say it again, that was a long one, all right? It isn't just people and groups with power who can be unjust and racist, but cultural power does come with a particular temptation towards injustice. All right, so let's unpack that. Let's be quick to say that any power we possess raises our level of responsibility and our temptation to misuse it. That is the nature of power in a fallen world, all right? There's a temptation for power to be misused wherever you have it. If you have it as a parent, if you have it in your workplace, if you are a part of a people group in a society that tends to, to inhabit more positions of power and authority, there is a temptation to misuse that, all right? That's something we need to acknowledge. And there's a responsibility for how we use it that is greater. Luke 12, 48 tells us, to whom much is given, much will be, anybody know? Required. Right, And the context there, by the way, is the Lord talking about his return and saying, did you use what I entrusted to you well? Right, So he's saying, when he says much will be required, he doesn't just mean at a human level. He means before the Lord himself. Whatever he's given you, he's given you more responsibility, more authority, more power, more effect, you will be held accountable. Much will be required of you. Now, Here's the other side of that, right? So we recognize the temptation to misuse power. We've already talked a bunch about the fallenness of the world and the expectation of what that means for us, how we have to be so diligent in rooting that out all the time. But let's talk about the first part of that statement, this idea that is prevalent in the culture that uh, only those, and in particular white people in our cultural context, only white people can be racist, right? Only those with power, cultural power can be racist and those who are minorities can be prejudiced, but not racist. And I wanna tell you that's a false idea, right? Now let me tell you why, all right? Let me tell you why, because I think often people have a knee-jerk reaction against it, and they're not sure why that's a false idea. Let me tell you why it's a false idea without saying that racism is somehow impossible, okay? So let's say this. The problem with that idea is that only, that the problem with the idea that only the majority ethnic group can be racist, but others can be prejudiced, is that it makes the sin purely an action, all right? So if I say racism depends purely on the possession of power then and how that power gets used, do you see what has happened there? And often then what gets said is therefore it's not really a personal individual problem, it's a, it's a system problem. The problem with that is that it makes the sin only about my actions, only about what I do because I use my power in an inappropriate way and therefore that's the sin. But do you understand that the Bible talks about sin as a problem of the heart first and then it flows out in the actions? And the reason why it's important to say whether I'm an ethnic majority or an ethnic minority, I can be racist which we would say is to devalue someone or treat them differently, unfairly, unjustly, based upon their ethnicity, based upon their race, right? Is that it is not just an action problem. It is also a, and actually first, it's a heart problem. So if I only deal with it in the systemic, at the larger institutional level, and if I say only this one group can be guilty of it while another cannot, what I'm essentially doing is I'm cutting out the actual heart of the ability to deal with it. Because what I've done is I've taken the issue of the heart out of play. And friends, regardless of what color your skin is, you can be guilty of devaluing someone who is of a different race or different ethnicity than you are. That's possible for everybody. Now, the reason we don't call it prejudice in one group and racism in another group is because that's not the way the Bible talks. The Bible does not say the same sin in two different peoples is going to be called two different things based upon some other arbitrary category for them. The Bible is not nearly a respecter of persons in that kind of a way. It doesn't go, well, yeah, for you, I'll, I'll kind of call it this thing that feels a little lesser, but for you, I'll call it something more, right? When the scriptures speak to that, it calls sin, sin. 
And it just says, this is what it is. When it's in you or when it's in you, this is what it is. And the problem is what's in your heart, which is why only Jesus can solve that problem. Last belief I want to talk about is just this. Now, so we just said that this is rooted in the heart and therefore at the individual level it matters. But I want to come to maybe another side of that. Another belief that is a right application, I believe, of a biblical theology of ethnicity, race, and justice is this. Systems can be unjust. Systems can be unjust. And I should be willing to dialogue about that. Now listen, friends. If we expect that systems are created by people who are fallen and sinful, then is it a big stretch to expect that the systems we create would be broken and flawed and sometimes unjust? Now listen, that is not the same as saying every system is unjust. That's not true. There are systems that are good. There are laws that are good, right? And yet, to expect that it's possible that some would be unjust and that some would be in need of change just seems like a right theology of understanding how sin impacts not just us individually, but then what pours out of us, right? So that being the case, that being the case, friends, if I have that expectation that that's possible, here's what happens. We tend to knee-jerk on, in, on one of two sides. We have one side which would sort of knee-jerk to the side of kind of denying that any systems are unjust and just sort of saying, well, anybody who sees injustice in them, it's like, it tends to react against that idea. And the other side is, is maybe to act like, well, every system is so inherently full of racism or so inherently tainted or so inherently unjust that the whole thing's gotta go. And neither of those two extremes are really where we want to be because neither are true, right? So now the reality is if we all accept as believers, just with our biblical theologies, if we just accept that it is possible that systems can be unjust, now we've got a place to dialogue. And we may even come to different conclusions. You and I may get into a conversation and I might say, you know, it seems to me that this system, it seems unjust. And you might say, I don't think it is. And I'd say, well, tell me why. And you might explain your reasoning. And I would say, well, here's, here's kind of my data points. And we might even part ways and not be on the same page. But we don't have to divide. Because we're beginning from a place of saying, look, we recognize injustice is real. We recognize it can, there can be injustice in systems, right? And at the same time, we recognize that it's not true that all systems are that way. And so we just have opportunity to dialogue about that and to assess it with patience and to ask, okay, where we see it then, what do we do about it? And where we don't, how do we not let false accusations be made? So I think that's important for us to, I just, I find it seems like we talk past one another in these conversations. Have you felt that in this season? I don't know, maybe, maybe you're not having these conversations. I feel like I'm having them. And it just feels like we're talking past each other half the time. I just want to be like, I don't, think, I don't think we're as far off as you think we are. Let's get back to our basic theology. That's what we've been trying to do in this series. We want to, we want to help you in these conversations. We want to help you go, oh, this is a biblical theology. Okay, now we've got this grounding. And now we can have these really fruitful conversations as a result. We may not even always end up on the same page about every system or every policy or every law. But as we talk about them, we've got a basic theology that we're inheriting together. And as we do that, we can go forward, all right? All right, let's talk about our actions, all right? Let's talk about three actions that I think bear out from a biblical theology of these things. So number one, we should seek to have diverse relationships in our lives. We should seek to have diverse relationships in our lives. And I'm, I mean ethnically diverse here, um, other Forms are good too, but I'm thinking specifically of that. Now, remember what we said, the basic premise of a biblical theology of ethnicity and race is that God is using this as a tool to bring forward his redemptive purposes in the world, right? That it's been like, remember, we went into Genesis 11 and we looked at Tower of Babel and we saw how God created ethnicities there and then sent them out to the far reaches of the earth. And one of the reasons he did that was because that was gonna enable him to bring the redemption that he wanted to bring so that Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 could come about one day where Jesus says, I'm gathering people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I'm gathering them all around my throne because that's what gets me the most glory. Right? God did not determine that it got him the most glory to get one people group for himself. He determined it got him the most glory to have multiple people groups and bring them 
people from all of them to him. Isn't that really cool? All right, like, if you don't love that vision, heaven ain't gonna be pleasant. (laughs) That's what he's doing. Now listen, friends, it stands to reason if that's the case, that me seeking to have more ethnic diversity in my life in relationship is a good thing because I experience more of the redemptive work of God through it. If it's a tool in his tool belt, I want to experience it. I want to be part of it. I want to grow in it. Because as I do, I get to experience, again, something that he is using and has used from the very beginning to get glory for himself in his redemptive advancement in the world. Now, I often hear, when I, when I argue for that kind of a thing, I will often hear, yeah, but I live in a majority, I mean, this is mostly those of us who are white. I'll hear, well, I, you know, but I live in a majority white context, and so it just doesn't kind of present itself. Well, one, I would say, you're not looking very hard. And our, our demographics, legitimately, our demographics are changing. Praise God, that's awesome, all right? That's a good thing. So glad for that. So number two, I would say, number two, I would say, if it's something that gets you more experience of God's redemptive work, why wouldn't you actively seek after it? Why wouldn't you? That just seems like a good thing to do to get more of an experience of God's redemptive work. And then we could say that about a lot of different categories. This is just one among many. So I would suggest it is a good action to take to seek to have more diverse relationships in our lives. Second action, be reactive and proactive about justice. Be reactive, and I've got to explain that because that's confusing. Be reactive and proactive about justice. So I, I sympathize with this because this happens all the time. If you were to read through every verse that talked about justice in the Bible, you would be overwhelmed. You were probably overwhelmed last week just by all that we talked about justice entails, right? When you think about a biblical theology of it, you go, oh my goodness, caring for the poor, caring for the widow, visiting the prisoner, caring for the oppressed, figuring out who's vulnerable and needy and being generous. Does anybody get a little overwhelmed by that? You can't do everything. I said that to you last week. So being a person that is just and walking in the justice of God does not mean that you alone take up every aspect of justice that there is. So then the question is super practical. Is, well, so what do I do? Like, how can I grow in walking in the justice of God so that I'm not ignoring it, but I'm also not acting as if I alone have to do every single thing the scripture says? about what justice entails. We're a body, across the whole body, we are experiencing different expressions of that and walking in them. Does that make sense? That's, see yourself as a part of a family of faith here. That's important. Now, here's what I would suggest, three things, okay? Number one, ask, where am I being unjust? If you're an employer, are you paying fair wages? Do you have policies and practices as an employer that recognize that your people who work for you are image bearers? and you are treating them as such with dignity and worth and respect? Or do you have policies that do the opposite, right? Are you withholding the truth from anybody? That is unjust, right? Assess your own life and ask, am I participating in any form of injustice, benefiting from a form of injustice that I know and I need to put it down? That would be the first thing. That's that's just kind of a start there, right? Ask that. Then let's talk about reactive and proactive. The reactive side is this. You can trust that just in the daily course of your life, just living the life that God has called you to, the work that he's invited you into, that you will have opportunities to do justice, right? The Christmas Eve offering is just one example of that. In the normal course of your worship here, here was an opportunity to be generous towards the poor. We said that's a part of justice, yes? So when you participated in that, you were doing justice, right? So react to the opportunities God brings into your path. That's, that's most of life. <laughs> we have a plan, we have a direction, we're walking in it, and as we do, God brings opportunities and we respond in the moment to those opportunities. That's what I mean by be reactive. If you have a lens to see what justice is biblically, then you will see when it comes to you and you can react, right? Then proactive. Don't stop there. Go before the Lord and ask him, are there any particular issues of justice that you want me to take up? And let him speak to those. Might be that God says to you, I want you to speak for the unborn. 
might be that God says, I want you to help think about certain systems of law enforcement and uh, criminality. I, I want you to engage with those and take the biblical grid to them so that the world is not the one defining everything about what is just and unjust. He may press something on your heart and as he does, obey and go forward proactively to be a part of that work. So that's what I mean when I say, ask if there's injustice in me, be reactive in what God brings to you and be proactive in seeking if there are other things he would impart to you in your heart to be about. And by the way, that's just, I think, pretty decent counsel for discerning anything God wants you to do outside of these categories, right? He's going, okay, what opportunities do you bring to me now? Which ones do you want me to proactively go after? Now, last action it's a very basic one, and we've been talking about it, is have a plan for generosity that includes vulnerable people. As I looked back through all of our tenets of a biblical theology of justice, we have that one that says Ezekiel 18, five through nine, Deuteronomy 24, they all tell us that part of, part of justice is generosity towards the poor and the oppressed. And so having a plan for that, we talk to you about having a plan all the time for giving generosity, uh, for generosity so that money doesn't take hold of your heart, Right? giving generously to your church, to the causes of the gospel. And this is another place where you can consider, Lord, what, what do you want me to do in terms of generosity towards people who are in need? That's a part of justice. And having a plan for that is important. So here's what I would say too. When you think about becoming a person who is just, don't get bored with the basics. I think everyone thinks about this and they think they have to do some Herculean thing, that they have to be you know, doing some massive you know, movement sort of a thing, friends, you will grow in justice as you just do the basics, as you just don't get tired of doing the very basic mundane thing of saying, okay, these are the resources God has put in my hands. Part of justice is seeking to be generous towards those in need. I'm gonna do that. And so I'm gonna think about where that exists in my community. Now, we do that as a church, by the way. I hope you know that when you bring money here, that we are seeking to steward that money as an entrustment from you and from the Lord to say, how do we leverage this for gospel purposes? How do we seek to care for the needy in our community and globally? Those are all aspects of our consideration when it comes to generosity and what God has us to do with his money, not our money, his money. So those are the three actions. Now, look, like I said, Character, belief, actions. You could list a thousand more in each of those categories. I understand. Those are the things I wanted to share with us today, kind of been on my mind as I went back through things. But let me make one overarching conclusion, all right? One overarching conclusion. Ultimately, growing in a right theology of ethnicity and race and justice will be a work of the Spirit. And so the most important application of everything we've said is pray. I just said, don't get tired of the basics. Pray. Pray that you would love justice. Pray that where you're hard-hearted towards it, God would change you. Pray that where you're indifferent, God would change you. And pray that for your church family. Pray that we would walk in all that God wants us to be, that we wouldn't resist any part of it, that we would love the truth as we do it. Now, we've done our, our level best over these weeks to lay out what does a biblical theology look like so that you don't have to imbibe secular ideas that do not hold water or merit, but not so that you and I would go, great, we can, we can just not worry about it now. The world worries a lot about it, therefore it's not a good thing. No, don't buy that. Do you see from beginning to end, God is a God of justice and God's people must be a people of justice. Don't let go of that just because the world has some ideas around it and loves to talk about it. Don't then dismiss it as if it's unimportant because people who don't agree with us about who Jesus is want to talk about it all the time. No, no, engage it in the way the scriptures invite us to engage it, but don't let go of it. Please pray, pray for us. Pray that we would be a people of justice. Pray that we would live out a biblical theology of ethnicity and race. Pray, pray, pray. Now, that is the most important <laughs> application of everything. Now, friends, let me say, particularly those of you who are joining us today who don't believe in Jesus, I'm gonna remind my people of something, but I wanna say something to you too. When we talk about this being gospel work, what we don't mean by that is that it's work we do in order to be saved. What we mean is that we believe that Jesus is the son of God, 
that he came into the world, died for our sins that we deserve to die for, paid the penalty for them, then rose from the dead, praise God, to defeat death and sin. And because of who he is and what he has done, we can't help but want to respond in obedience to all his commands. This is work we do because we believe the gospel. That's what we mean by gospel work. Work that naturally flows from a belief in this truth. You with me? So friend, hear me. The most important thing we could offer you is not a lesson in how to be just. The most important thing we can do is offer you salvation in Jesus. That we would say to you, you need him. None of us has any hope of being just apart from him because our hearts are wrecked. They're destroyed. If you're honest with yourself, you see it. I see it in me. But praise God that by his grace, he redeems us and makes us like him and saves us. And then we do the work. Yes, we want to do the work, but not because we get saved by doing it and not because the work itself is the most important thing. It flows out of a reconciled relationship to God with Jesus, through Jesus. And we want glory for him. And we want reconciliation for you to him. And then come and join us. We wanna be a people who practice justice. We wanna be a people who walk in righteousness. We wanna be a people who are doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Let me pray for us and then let's just respond by praising the Lord together, shall we? So our worship team can come on up, guys. Lord, we thank you for all that you are. It's just good to remember again today, there is no imperfection in you. And we don't say that as some trite idea. We say it because we believe it and because it impacts everything. That everything about you is perfection. Everything about you is right. Everything about you is good. And not only that, you have not stayed on high and away from us. You've made yourself known to us so we can know you and we can know truth. We can walk with you. We can be changed. Man, everything, everything comes back to who are you? And we thank you that in your mercy, you have made yourself known how good you are to us. We thank you for sending your son to us. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for imparting your spirit to all who believe. And we pray now that you would teach us to, to walk in the power of that spirit and in obedience to that word. Thank you, King Jesus. Receive glory from us now. We pray that as we've heard the word, now that our hearts are full. And then in that fullness, we now turn to, to resound with praise and respond with praise. So receive them flowing from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.